hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. And before we get going, I know it's a couple of days early, but I want to thank all the veterans out there and their families who have served this country over the years. I appreciate it so very much. It's eight weeks and counting. That's right. The Dow and the S&P 500 have moved higher for eight weeks in a row. With over 80% of the S&P 500 companies reporting, earnings per share are up around 8%. And that's on the back of revenue growth growing by better than 5%. So the story continues to be strong growth here and abroad easy fiscal policy, and low yields. Now, I don't expect much of a change in the very near term, so the path of least resistance for stocks is higher. Yes, you could get a 5 or 10% garden variety type correction, but the path of least resistance for stocks is higher over the intermediate term. One thing we haven't talked about much here on the show is the pickup in capital spending by businesses. I think this is going to be a major theme for next year and something I'll address during the annual outlook in January. We're already seeing signs of this. We've had back-to-back 3% GDP quarters. And when I looked at the composition of the last report, it has me thinking that the next quarter could be even better. The ongoing CapEx cycle that we're starting to see, and if we get any assistance from an infrastructure bill, well, that's likely to add fuel to the fire and could propel stocks further into overshoot territory. I really, really think investors are dismissing the potential positive thrust from a capital spending upturn. That's not only a common late cycle phenomena, but it also results in a virtuous earning cycle. Since the 1980s, early 1980s, CapEx growth has typically trailed earnings growth by about a year. So let me lay this out for you. As earnings get better, which they are, as earnings get better, CEOs have more confidence in the future. Just makes sense. They feel better about the outlook. And then they start to make longer term investments in their businesses. I might add that. It also works the other way too, right? When profits go down, they start to tighten their belts and cut back on spending. Right now, I think those animal spirits are starting to kick in and we're in takeoff mode. I would actually be shocked if the current business cycle ended without a visible CapEx spending upcycle. Since the 1980s, all four recessions that we've had have been preceded by a CapEx soaring to a roughly 20% annual growth rate. And right now, it looks like we're only on the cusp of entering expansion territory. So if the past is any guide, we should see a significant increase in CapEx. Again, driving stocks further into la-la land. If I'm right, 
and CapEx spending does take off and drives earnings higher, well, you'll want to look at the capital goods makers versus the defensive type stocks because of their higher operating leverage. Believe me, we're digging, we're doing our homework here to find the quality companies that hopefully we can buy at reasonable prices. You have to do your homework. There's no substitute for it. You have to do your homework. Let me spend a couple of minutes on the retirement planning side of things. It's something we probably don't do enough of. I know that. Having a plan in place is just good common sense. Let's talk about RMDs. It's that time of year when, if you're of a certain age, you're getting notified by your broker that you have to take your RMD. And for those of you who aren't of a certain age, RMD stands for required minimum distribution. Let me give you four or five things to consider here. Number one, you've saved, you've invested all your life. You've done the right thing. You've used your IRAs. You contributed to the 401k at work. So you've had all those years of tax deferred growth. Well, guess what? Now the, the government wants their fair share or what they consider their fair share, right? They want to tax your own on all that money that's been growing all these years. So leave it to the IRS to make something as simple as a start date, more complicated than it needs to be. You can take your first RMD the year you turn 70 and a half or as late as April 1st of the following year. You got that? Why don't they just make it 70 or 71? Make it easier on everybody. Who knows? But if you delay until the next calendar year, you'll be forced into taking two RMDs. Number two, RMDs apply to employer-sponsored accounts. Yes, that includes your traditional IRAs, as well as your 401s, your 403Bs, your 457s, the SEPs, the SARSEPs, the SIMPLES, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't apply to the Roth IRAs because theoretically, you've already paid the taxes up front since the money contributed went in after tax. Number three, how much do you take? Well, the amount is uh, calculated off the previous year's ending account balance. And it's based off of life expectancy. You can go to the IRS website and you can find the calculation using the uniform lifetime table. And if your spouse is more than 10 years younger than you and is the sole beneficiary, then you can use a different table, which may work out better for you. When you do this, You need to calculate the amount you need to take out of all your IRAs, but you don't have to take it out of each one. You can take it out of one account if you want. Yeah, you can take it out of all of them if you'd like, but you don't have to. You just need to calculate the amount from each account and then take it out from wherever best suits you. However, RMDs from IRAs, They don't satisfy the RMD requirements for a 401k or other retirement employer retirement plans. You have to calculate and withdraw those separately. Number four, 
have a plan. I say it all the time and I'll say it again. Have a plan. Spending down the money properly is just as important as saving it. When you're taking money out, it's important to remember that RMDs mean increased income. And that can boost Medicare premiums. They can result in taxation of Social Security benefits and even reduce or eliminate eligibility for a number of needs-based programs. So spending it down the right way is important. Now, this is a big subject and I just scratched the surface here. There's no way, no way that we can address everything in the scope of this show. There's a lot of twists and turns involved. And I'm not a lawyer or a tax advisor or I didn't spend the night in the holiday in either. So make sure that you consult with your advisor to make sure you're doing what makes sense for you. If you need help or want help, well, call us. Hey, it's time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about two stocks, two of my favorite stocks that announced earnings last week. This is Eric Whiteman. We are back in just a moment. You worked hard. You saved and invested along the way. Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off so you can do what matters most to you, whether it's giving back to your community or ensuring a safe, comfortable retirement. It's never too late to start planning. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. If you want someone who can help you navigate the investment landscape, then please visit us at our website, xmlfg.com or call us at 301-770-5234. Well, thank you and welcome back to today's show. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me. If you have questions for the podcast, you can email us at podcast at xmlfg.com. Once again, that's podcast, which is plural, at xmlfg.com. And we'll try and answer your questions on the show. Got two stocks I want to talk about. After all the talk about how the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8 Plus, how their sales were just doing so poorly, Apple ended up crushing their numbers when they reported last week. Earnings per share came in at $2.07 versus the analyst expectations of $1.84. It was a big beat. And revenues came in $2 billion higher than expected at $52.6 billion. Not only did they beat this quarter's estimates, they raised guidance for next quarter and next year. They sold nearly 47 million iPhones last quarter, which was up 2.6% year over year, with the 8 and the 8 Plus being the top two models sold. And the 8 Plus is off to the fastest start of any Plus model they've had. So this is contrary to all that bad news that was flying around out there. They also saw double-digit growth from the services business, which is now, as they pointed out on the call, now 
the size of a Fortune 100 company. And they expect it to double over the next four years. Think about that. When I talk about the services portion, I'm talking about the App Store, Apple Pay, Apple Music, iCloud, those things. Well, what about the wearables? The watch. The watch was up 50% year over year. But what really surprised me was the number of iPads and Macs that were sold. iPads grew over 11% and the Macs grew better than 10%. It was the best year ever for Mac. It seems like things are doing just fine out in Cupertino. They're generating a ton of free cash flow, nearly $12 billion last quarter, and they used $11 billion of it to buy back stock. I'll also mention that they ended the quarter with almost $270 billion in cash on the balance sheet, nearly all of it overseas. So Apple would clearly benefit if they were allowed to repatriate it on favorable terms. This is and that's what they're talking about in the tax bill, potential tax bill. So, as I said, Apple raised guidance for the next year. They're guessing that they're going to earn around $10.39. That means that Apple is trading at about 16 to 17 times next year's earnings. That's less than what the market's trading at. And they're trading at 14 times next year's earnings if you exclude the $30 per share in cash that they have on the balance sheet. Not crazy, but not cheap like it's been. And I like cheap. I've been saying it's a buy under 155 and I'm going to keep it there for right now. I own it. Another one is Berkshire Hathaway, symbol BRK. We buy the B shares, so it's BRKB. Another one of my favorite companies, they reported last week. If you missed it, I talked about it on the show a couple of weeks ago. You can always go back and listen. Go to XMLFG.com. Click on the podcast. I keep them all there, four or five of them as far, for an archive. Well, Berkshire reported earnings of $1.40, and that was versus the $1.97 a year earlier. So significantly lower than last year. And it was below the $1.58 consensus estimate. So not a real good quarter for them because they had a $1.4 billion underwriting loss. Now that's going to happen when you have substantial insurance operations and along comes three hurricanes and an earthquake. All in all, insurance revenues have been healthy. But revenue growth in the railroad, utilities, and the energy segments, well, they've been rather lacklusters. Earnings from the railroad were roughly flat, while the earnings from the utilities in the energy businesses were up just over 3%. Nothing to get excited about. I've explained before, you can look at Berkshire as being three different pieces. One is the insurance operations. We know what happened there. The second piece would be the wholly owned subsidiaries like Burlington Northern, the railroad, Mid-America Energy. And then they also own companies like Dairy Queen, Fruit of a Loom, et cetera. There are more than 70 of them. And then the third piece would be their investments in publicly traded companies like Wells Fargo, symbol WFC, Coca-Cola, symbol KL. At the end of the quarter, 
their publicly traded holdings had a market value of $157.7 billion. And that's up from $122 billion on January 1st of this year. Berkshire owns more than $21 billion worth of Apple, symbol AAPL, which we just talked about. They doubled their stake in the first quarter of this year. And I tell you, looking back, that was a pretty smart thing to do. In August, Berkshire converted 50,000 shares of Bank America, symbol BAC, preferred stock into 700 million shares of BAC common stock. If you're a shareholder, you're probably pretty happy with Berkshire. Over the last quarter, the shares were up 6.1% compared to the S&P gain of 4.6%. And over the past year, shares are up 27% versus 21% for the index. And if you want to go back even farther, the stock is up 118% over the last five years versus the index being up 84%. My point is, Berkshire has historically done very well for its shareholders. Since 1965, they've grown on average almost 20% or 21%, excuse me, 21% per year versus almost 10% for the S&P 500. Yes, that's double the S&P 500 for the last 52 years. And I tell you, that adds up to a boatload of money. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case going forward. I would be surprised to see them grow at more than, say, 10% per year going forward. But I'd also be very surprised to see them growing at less than 7% per year going forward. The reason, well, the major challenge as I see it is their cash. They have too much of it. That's a nice problem to have, right? At the end of the quarter, they had $96 billion. Now, Warren Buffett has said he wants to keep $20 billion on hand just for liquidity's sake, but that still leaves a lot of money to be invested. That's the problem with valuations at this level is that it's very difficult to make sizable investments and that cash is going to act as a drag on earnings. At the last annual shareholder meeting, Warren Buffett said they may adjust the buyback program, which currently prevents them from buying stock back over 1.2 times book value. And book value for the B shares is roughly 125 and the stock is trading at about 186 right now. So right now the stock is trading at about one and a half times book value. To me, it's expensive. With Berkshire, you should look at book value, not PE. Don't pay attention to the PE. Doesn't mean a whole lot. You want to look at book value and we'll talk about that sometime in the future. It's a great company run by one of the greatest investors of all time, but at the moment, the stock is expensive. This is one that I own too. It's in my portfolio. Just can't be a buyer at this point. That's all we have time for today. We'll be back next Wednesday with fresh ideas. Until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. Okay, you've listened to the show. 
Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.